In our first incarnation, as a print magazine, a music store, and a concert venue up in the Chicago area in the early 90s, True Tunes occupied a pretty interesting space. We were young, rock, and alternative-oriented kids who were beset with the idea that the words and work of Jesus, especially when extricated from the accoutrements of the prevailing church culture, were actually pretty radical. So, to our peers, the fellow members of the emerging alt-rock Generation X, True Tunes existed as a sort of radical alternative that dared to take Jesus seriously. To the Christian culture, however, our natural and completely unselfconscious embrace of more extreme forms of music seemed radical in a totally different way. To the church world, True Tunes was seen as shocking in the way we took music seriously. So, when we decided to put Amy Grant, the queen of Christian pop and a perennial source of controversy within the evangelical subculture, on the cover of our magazine, some said it was the most punk thing we had ever done. We managed to offend both our rock and metal fans and the contemporary Christian music fundamentalists who were convinced that Grant's mainstream success in the early 90s was confirmation of her compromise. To us, though, Amy Grant made perfect sense. She took our music seriously and crafted it in a way everyone could relate to. Hello, I'm John J. Thompson, and on this episode of the True Tunes Podcast, I am beyond thrilled to welcome the one and only Amy Grant, who joins us to discuss her unlikely journey. How is it that this artist, who is still seen by many as the face of contemporary Christian music, is also appreciated as a voice of grace, compassion, and welcome to people outside of the Christian community? As we hit the 30th anniversary of her mainstream breakthrough pop album, Heart in Motion, she's also a part of a new collaboration called Faithful that finds Amy working alongside a slew of amazing women, including Ellie Holcomb, Krista Wells, Sandra McCracken, Sarah McIntosh, Ginny Owens, Taylor Lenhart, and many others. Amy has some important wisdom for us in this powerful season of her life. And because her music deserves a careful listen, I have invited two very important people to join me for an extended special edition of the True Tunes Jukebox. Chris Hauser is absolutely unique in the music industry. He is one of the most influential professionals in the Christian radio world, currently working with many of the biggest artists and songs out there. He has also worked with Amy's former label and brings some valuable perspective as an industry expert for us. But besides all that, Hauser is a profound fan of great music. Just try keeping him in any of your boxes. I've sat with him at Bonnaroo and Foo Fighters shows, as well as meetings about the Dove Awards. So, yeah, he's a fascinating guy with a huge heart, big ears, and a generous perspective that he will share with us today. Singer-songwriter Michelle Lynn Thompson, who also happens to be my wife, brings her perspective today as a young woman who was profoundly impacted by Amy Grant's music when she was just a kid. Though Michelle doesn't find much Christian music to be compelling these days, there's plenty about Amy's work that continues to inspire her as a listener and as a songwriter herself. It will be an extended, conversational jukebox this time as we listen carefully to Amy Grant on the True Tunes podcast. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back after this. We're back with this cold storage episode from the True Tunes podcast. 
so thankful that Amy Grant, who has been on so many major media outlets recently, agreed to drop by the True Tunes virtual interview suite from her home in Nashville. Knowing that our time was limited, I jumped right in. Wow, but thank you for yeah. taking some time to talk with us for the, sure, the True yeah. Tunes podcast. I've just got this re-going. You know, it was it was dormant for a long time and I uh, was given the name back and we started it up as a new, a new way of talking about music and spirit and soul and this theme has emerged of listen to better music and listen to music better and uh all those old in the old days there was such a wall around is this christian music is it secular music and everybody had to try to define that and then the industry was even organized around that and Mm -hmm. true tunes was always about trying to blur all those lines but now that stuff's gone that those those things are over and from the moment we started it I, i wanted to to talk with you uh, about a few things in particular one of the things that one of the reasons I've, I've really wanted to to chat with you is is uh, when I think back to sort of the Jesus music that you were inspired by in the very beginning and even the stuff before that you were also inspired by you say Carol King and James Taylor and those singer-songwriters when you first picked up a guitar and started singing music and imagined there's people out there listening to you. Who did you think your audience was when you were just getting started? Well, my first audience uh, was made up of my friends at school. First time I ever got on a stage, I was a, a sophomore in high school. I was too nervous to do it by myself, so I asked my friend Debbie, who had a higher voice, if she would sing with me. And our set list was uh, made up of John Denver songs, um, I loved that Carol King song, Will You Still Love Me Tomorrow, some James Taylor, maybe a Joni Mitchell song, and then I would inject songs that I had written. And so, to me, songs about faith are, it's the context of all of life that makes a faith song. My life experience is everything. It's love, joy, car ride with the windows down and my arms hanging out. It's the birth of my kids. It's heartbreak. It's the journey of faith. And so, you know, when I got a record deal as a 15-year-old, freakish, I wasn't even good, but they were just trying to launch a new label, and they were trying to find 12 artists to launch that label with. And just in our part of the country, there were not that many people doing it. So I was taken from doing what I would call an eclectic set list and then asked to just record songs of faith. That was not my natural inclination. And at a certain point in time, I said this, to me it's the context of a faith song that makes it the salt. It makes it the light. It's so, to me, I, just that journey of what's my comfort zone in what I feel like I don't know what I'm good at and I feel like what I always wanted to do was create a welcome table I used music Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path It does seem that 
very early on, relatively speaking. It might not have seemed like it at the time, but after just a few records, and, and honestly, really, I, it's easy to think Christian kids listening to Christian music because they heard about it in church, therefore CCM music gets kind of dismissed as being in the bubble. But even those kids in that bubble, there's a lot of need and there's a lot of hunger and thirst. So even within that genre, you were finding a way, I think, to to be open and welcoming and transparent. But within just a couple records, you start to orient your rudder out toward everybody, right? Like by unguarded, leave me on certainly. So by the time Heart and Motion comes out and you're, you've got your rudder aimed towards everybody, it seemed like people in the church world see you as leaving or rejecting them. Whereas what you're trying to do in my estimation at the time was you just got your arms wide open to everybody. Mm-hmm. I would say probably probably with the record Unguarded. Um, and at that point, that came out maybe in 1985. So I was, I was 24 years old. And I grew up going to church. I did not grow up with a family that owned gospel records. I would find out about contemporary Christian music, but I did not have a steady diet of it. And and when I would go to gatherings, uh, especially if they were, I don't even know how to say it, but I, I just was going, I just, I don't speak this same language. I don't, it's a great big world out there. It's a great big world and everybody needs to know, I mean, for God so loved the world. <laughs> There's sort of no way around that. That's the person you identify with. It's the person you don't identify with. It's the person who has a different opinion than you have. It's the person who is making choices that, you know, my parents would ground me forever if I'd made those choices. But it doesn't, you know, and I just think early on, I remember being in the studio and one of the heads of Word Records came by. His name was Dan Johnson. And it was not lost on me that they were paying for everything. They were paying for the recording sessions. They were paying for... Um, I was working hard supporting that music in a live setting. But And I, I said, I know the mission statement of Word Records, but I it doesn't... If you just say the same thing in every song, you're not even telling a story. You know, and I, I just said, my I don't... Everything is not answered in my life. Not even yet. And I'm 24. I don't have the answers to everything. I don't... And and I don't I don't know how I can't remember the conversation, but I remember crying hard. Mm. And we were in a control room at a studio, and I just I can't do, I I can't do what my contract says I'm supposed to do because to me it is not even a conversation. Wow. And he just said, um, he said, you know, Jesus talked in stories. Wow. And he said, go make music. And I. Said thank you, and wow. so yeah. That's not a story you hear all the time. I know, <laughs> I know. Wow. Yeah, and I don't. And also, I think in that, I th- I think where I was in life too. Uh, probably part of me was asking for permission to just live my life, mistakes and all, mm-hmm. and to. Um, I mean, there's so there's. I look at so many things differently now. And I've looked at my kids at every stage. You know, they're the youngest is twenty, and sometimes I'll go, 
I can't believe I had people asking me the answers to deep questions when right. I was that age. Like, exactly. what did I know? Right. You know, and you learn most every good lesson the hard way, like extreme yeah. failure. Right. And so, which um, is the stuff that then disqualifies you in a lot of their minds from having any kind of authority. <laughs> you make a mistake, you're disqualified. I know. I, that's I, oh the my very gosh, thing our, that's going to give you the <laughs> yes, expertise. Yes, <laughs> I know. But you know, I mean, it's funny because, like, I remember being backstage at the last Billy Graham event that I was invited to is in Minneapolis and you know they have all that pipe and draping backstage and um, and it was a fortunate time that I was actually going to get to speak to him I think it was like 1997 my life was completely derailing and um, it would be two years before I was going through a divorce but I should just say I was derailing but my life was you know whatever But when I finally made it through to the pipe and drape, and we sat down, and it was a rare moment that I was alone with Dr. Graham. I mean, you know, he didn't do the alone thing very much. And, um, and I said, I don't know when it's going to happen, but I'm pretty sure I'm headed for a divorce, and the details of my life are really messy right now. And I just don't want to present myself as something. I'm getting up on stage with you tonight as a, a woman with a young family who is really struggling to find my footing and and I don't I I so don't care what anybody else says about me it I am trying to find my footing so that I can walk out of this woods in which I feel very lost and he said he took my hand and kind of patted it and he said um you know I I've had some children that had to take the long way home as well. Wow. And I said, thank you. Because of the Graham and Associates, I was never invited back to a crusade. I went back as a somebody in the crowd and loved it. Last time I saw Dr. Graham was at uh, Fleshing Meadows in New York, and I had my then-husband, Vince, my stepdaughter, Jenny, my three children. Um, and my baby and and Vince's and my daughter and all the hellos were there so good to see you you know so great to see your family but i understand what it's like for somebody to say we have our rules and we have to they're in place for a reason and that's okay hmm. that's what i've learned through this long journey is that we all are on the on the same journey, but how grace and failure and all those things exhibit is just unique to every one of us. And there can still be compassion and welcome and all those things simultaneously. So <laughs> if I could see what the angels see. Behind the walls, beneath the sea, under the avalanche, through the trees, gone to be the mystery, if I could see. That's actually the, the other main thing I wanted to talk with you about is that you have maintained and increased <laughs> your, your legacy 
I would say, is an artist who everybody knows is a Christian artist, and yet your reputation is unequivocally one of generosity and welcome and uh, graciousness towards people across the spectrum. And these days, Christian and welcome, those those unfortunately are, are not associated with each other that much anymore. To what do you credit your gift of hospitality and graciousness? Um, gosh, I, I think I just keep it really simple. You know, the journey of a Christian is basically love God, love your neighbor. Two rules, one prayer. Love God, love your neighbor, and the Lord's Prayer, which really the linchpin <laughs> of the yeah. Lord's Prayer is forgiveness. Yeah. And so um, I think it comes naturally to me to try to put myself – I'm always curious about it. What, look, what it looks like from the other side of the coin. You know, as I get older, I find myself, especially now in our culture, um, as a upper-middle-class Caucasian woman saying, what does it look like on the other side of the coin? for um, a, a black woman my age, 60 years old. She's raised four kids, five kids. What's, it, what's life been like for her? What is, it's that same lesson that I began learning in the 80s. We cannot assume that everyone's experience is the same as ours. I remember being on a playground at the public school I went to in the third grade and playing with one little girl, and it was back. You know, we would wear these kind of kind of short dresses that looked like oversized shirts. And I remember she had some white tights. And at one point, she was climbing up on a jungle gym, and I saw that the crotch of her white tights was taped with some kind of like tape. And I just remember going, "Why? Why are her clothes taped?" And then later, she I was invited to her house, walking distance from the school, and I went. And I remember going. Her house is it's so it's very small and dark. It's very small and dark. And years later, we found ourselves, I mean decades later, in a place that an art uh, the Frist Art Museum was doing uh, was allowing um, native First Nation people to do have a gathering on the back lawn. And I was there with some friends. Somehow through that experience, I can't remember all the details, but I came back into contact with this young woman. I mean, we were whatever age we were then. I think we were probably mid-40s. And she said, when we were children, my life was so different from yours, but we had a friendship. Mm-hmm. And I just thought, I can't even, you know, sort of in... In my wildflower, I mean, I didn't want everybody to be like me. I I was always interested in people that were different. I remember going to church camp one time when I was like 15, and I was so enamored with this girl named Elaine. And they were part of the bus ministry. 
And when we came back from church, she would reach out to me at church. Will you go home with me? My my parents had a swimming pool. It never occurred to me what her life was like. And I went to her house. I picked up her, her brother Jackie, an older brother that scared me just a little bit. He was big, and one of his teeth was rotten in the front. And I was like, you guys need a haircut. I mean, I was so oblivious. (laughs) But I would, like, cut their hair. They'd swim in the pool. And I'm like, I got to go. I'm taking everybody home. Years later, I get a letter from her. My children are in high school. And I'm going to go on and tell you, I lost the letter. I, I, I lost it. But she said, you might not remember me. But when we were hanging out when I was a child, maybe we hung out four times. That was all. Because um, I was scattered and had my license. I was 16. But she said, there's no way for you to know that I would go home to a house where I was getting raped. Mm. Not by her brother, but by somebody else. And I would hide in a closet. And, I mean, I... And I was oblivious. I had no idea. And I and but somehow in that letter, and once again, I can't remember. Now, I, I was on my way to a some friends and I were leading like a prayer group for high school girls, and we just we cooked a great breakfast because really they were just coming for the food. <laughs> that's what that's what I've come to realize. People are just showing up for whatever scratches the itch. Right. But somewhere in there, somebody has a deeper need because we all have deeper deeper needs but I, I feel like so many God has used things like my curiosity in people who are other than I am I've always had a big gay following always since I was in high school Oh, and really? people are like, where do you stand on Bible verses? And I go, I got, th- I got two, two jobs and one prayer. Love God, love my neighbor, and forgive. Somehow my opinion all, on all that is not included in my job description. <laughs> wow. <laughs> you know? I mean, how, how, how radical an idea to say that our opinion doesn't have to be included in our job description. It does not. <laughs> and I got to tell you, I don't, I don't even tell Vince who I vote for. Uh, we don't say till after the election, but there have been times that I have been in my backyard just going, "Woo! It is hard to pray right now for the people in charge. It is hard to pray." And I'm like, "How, oh, God, God, what do I do? What do I do?" And you know what came to me? Keep going back in time till they have their little teeth. Mm. Just keep going back. You can pray for anybody if you picture them when they have their little teeth, because when we have our little teeth, things happen to us that turn us into who we become. Right. You know, it's just like, you know, and someday everybody's going to hear my whole life story, and I'm going to say, pop a lot of popcorn, because nobody's <laughs> going to know what it was. What you think it was is not what it was. Right. And it doesn't even matter. It doesn't right. matter. Right. So, you know, I, wow. I, 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 I take... Honestly, I take myself with a big grain of salt. There are a lot better singers, a lot better songwriters. I, but I was reared by parents who just said, if you will say, here I am, God. And that's what happened in my youth group. My youth group that was right on the edge of the projects, and I'm singing my little dingling songs. And I said, I just feel like, what if I gave my music to God? What if it was like my five loaves and two fish? Mm-hmm. And those kids... 
gathered around me, you know, and some of them were pot smokers. Two girls in our youth group got pregnant. I mean, we're a mess. But one guy whose parents had the Christian bookstore put his hands on me, and he was a teenager, and he just said, you're hearing it, God. It's her five loaves and two fish. Do whatever you want with it. And I, as I'm standing here, I'm going, the prayer of that teenager directed my life. Right. It did. Yeah. It's just like, oh, my gosh. Yeah. There's been a veil over, especially church, but a lot in a lot of areas of our society, we've blinded ourselves to a lot of those things, whether it's people of privilege blinding ourselves to people without, or even within things like the church being blinded to abuses that are happening. One of the aspects of technology and social media and sharing and cell phone videos and stuff is that it's it's bringing things out of closets that were locked up tight. We got to be honest with ourselves. We need to be honest about what we're actually going through. And all of that is under the gaze of God. And yeah. now when you look at the landscape, when you see what's happened with the, all of the changes and um, the way the industry or the, the musical climate, you've, you've just got this new faithful project that you've helped pull together. What would you like to see happen with Christians and music. I don't even want to call it Christian music, but just people of faith making music. What would you like to see happen over the next 10, 20 years uh, that would make you uh, excited and, and happy about that? Oh, goodness. Well, what I love about music is that music can find you in absolute solitude, you know, uh, and music also brings people together. And so um, I loved being part of the Faithful Project. Um, I turned 60. Lord willing, I'll, I am just beginning the third third of my life. But my dreams have nothing to do with music anymore. Hmm. And so it's not that I won't make music, but what I – and so what, what do I want for the, for the people – I mean, I'm not even – I love being moved by a song. I don't think I'm in a, a position this far down the river <laughs> to say what I think about music in the next 20 years. I don't mean I'm going to, you know, uh, it's just that I'm not, I love constantly being brought back into a conversation through music. I want to look at the rest of my life and what I have and say, what I have left, my time, my resources, this is my five loaves and two fish. Hmm. Because I, I want the last third of my life to be an exponentially greater adventure than the music chapter. Hmm. Uh, and it might include music, but I, I know it includes people's stories. I know it includes creating a welcome table. How could I not speak it That you didn't quit when they called you heretic They said it was too scandalous For you to come so close to me But you still My name 
the mentality of, of somebody that's artistic is, I don't think we're great with the overview. We do tend to get in a mole run and sort of, you know, with blinders on doing this thing that feels super important. And then we pop up and go, oh, where's the rest of the world? You know, so I don't, but I, I'm so grateful for the platform that I've had that was built because of music. But I don't know, um, you know, in the early days it was finding, I really felt like what I was always trying to do was find language for the journey of faith that would make somebody to say, no, you speak this. You speak this language. Everybody speaks this language. It doesn't sound familiar when it comes out like this, these and thous, but no, 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 it does. And and really what I I feel like I trust that God's going to use my my creativity to find, to create language and a new welcome table. And I hope it is to create new language for reconciliation. I hope it's to create new language for understanding the path of the haves and the least of these and coming together. Um, I have lived a very privileged life. So I'm curious. I had a dream. I, I, I had a, the same dream a couple of times, and it was about a father who died. He was very wealthy, and he had four children and two sons and two daughters. And it was very confusing. So to the older, to, to one son and one daughter, he gave everything. And to the other son and daughter, he gave nothing. And the first part of the dream was how the older son and daughter were like, I thought he loved me the best. He always loved me the best. And then and the, and the ones who got nothing felt he didn't love them at all. And then time went on, and there was all the complications with the things that the older ones had. And the and the one or the the ones that were given so much and the ones that were given not given anything with time went. I know what I know, I know what I know, and my father loved me. And then what happened was they had they had to bridge the gap with each other, and to say it looks so different, and we made all these assumptions about what what love looks like, but. It was really all of the knitting together of that family. It was almost like planned chaos <laughs> at the reading of the will. Right. But everybody's story changed. Right. And that really was how they came to understand the Father's love. And right. I'm just telling you, you just don't make up a dream like that. And it came to me, it's come to me more than once. And so, like, I'm going, well, what does that mean? But I, like every other day, I wake up and do what's right in front of today and and stay open to figuring out that dream and anyway so i yeah let's talk in 20 years i'll tell you where this went (laughs) it's crazy how fast 20 years goes that's for sure yeah it does well thanks for taking time with us today i really really appreciate it i was just rereading the interview we did in true tunes which was definitely the most punk rock thing we ever did was putting amy grant on the cover of true tunes Uh, 29 years ago or whatever it was but it's great to have you back lay down your burden I will carry you I will carry you my child my child lay down your burden I will carry you I will carry you my child my child
Again, I want to thank Amy for taking some time out of her busy schedule to visit with us today. And now, with her voice still hanging in the air, we're going to move into the front room of my East Nashville home and welcome my good friend Chris Hauser and my wife Michelle Lynn Thompson for a long-form extended edition of the True Tunes Jukebox. We've rolled her out here and put a fan back there on the tubes to keep them cool, so I've got a couple of amusement park tokens I found in a box downstairs. Let me drop them in here and see what happens. Love to live on a mountain top, fellowshipping with the Lord. I'd love to stand on a mountain top, cause I'd love to feel my spirit so We have rolled in the jukebox, we have loaded it, and Chris has brought all of this stuff. I mean the theater of the mind is rich in the jukebox day. We are looking at a long box Amy Grant CD. Um, long box for you little leaguers was when they put CDs in boxes that were as long as a record so that they, the early uh, bookstores and record stores had their racks all set up for LPs and they could fit two of those things in the, side by side and take the same amount of space. As Good for advertising. Yeah, so we're looking at an Amy Grant unguarded long box CD still sealed and I know that I know that I know that I called the right guy to come <laughs> guide us through the jukebox talking about the music and legacy of Amy Grant. Mr. Chris Hauser, thank you for joining us on the True Tunes podcast. Man. Glad to be here, man. What a what a treat. I love you guys and love this house and uh, just adore Amy Grant and have for decades. So I'm glad to be here and talk about some old songs. It's uh, it's fun. And we have another guest that's going to join us. Uh, and that is uh, singer and songwriter uh, Michelle Thompson, who also lives in this house and uh, was kidnapped at a young age and conscripted to sing in a, my band <laughs> and uh, married me. Um, and Michelle is uh, got some uh, an interesting perspective as well on this stuff. And so we're going to we're going to hear from her as well. So, Shell, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you. I had to travel pretty far to get here, so <laughs> I hope you're happy that I'm here. <laughs> All right. <laughs> hope All you right. appreciate it. <laughs> Slide it back over there. Um, so, when we when we talk about Amy Grant, it's interesting. You know, the theme of the show is listen to better music and listen to music better, and it's probably the second part of that that's the challenge for me. Listening to music better sometimes means pushing past our first thoughts or our impressions or even the brands that are associated with music. And Amy Grant looms so large as a figure when it comes to the symbol of what she means to Christian music and to wholesome pop music and everything else that it's easy to make assumptions about what Amy Grant music is, especially if you're not a super fan that's been listening from day one. So I just realized when we decided we really wanted to dig into Amy Grant's music, I needed some backup. I need some, <laughs> I need some help on this. Um, and my own story, I was definitely aware of her music. My mom was a big fan and the music was playing around the house, but the, the production and the style, especially of those early records was not something that, uh, I could relate to. And so it made it hard for me to even engage in those songs. So Chris, tell me about your 
early exposure to Amy and how that struck you and how her music has factored in to your life and your background? You bet. When I went to college in Syracuse in 1978, I was introduced to Christian rock music in like the late 78 and into early 79. Uh, Res Band, maybe even DeGarmo and Key, Larry Norman, Randy Stonehill, Keith Green. Uh, heard all that music for the first time. And then somehow I picked up Father's Eyes, the LP Father's Eyes by Amy, sometime in 79. And I remember having it with me and listening a lot the summer of 1979. And so uh, I'd started working in Christian radio, I think probably fall of 1979 in Syracuse. And so I was reading CCM Magazine every month and there was lots of ads for her. And so, and then being at the radio station and kind of seeing the charts and seeing that some things were starting to happen for this girl, uh, I was I was paying attention to that. So probably the Father's Eyes record was my introduction to her and i was fairly captivated by it i mean we're the same age we both were born in 1960 graduated high school in 1978 uh and so i feel i i'd always felt like a little bit of like kinship where we were kind of growing up alongside one another in a sense me in a small town in upstate new york her in nashville but then through the 80s as i got more involved at that christian radio station uh, I eventually became the program director, so I was having to pick the songs and play all the singles from those from those records. And so, and then we were able to see, like in 1982, Age to Age goes gold, uh, and she's, you know, 21, 20. Yeah, she was 21 years old in the summer of 1982 when she went gold and figured out, well, I guess I'm not going to go back to college anymore. <laughs> I think there's something else happening here, you know? Right. And so, um, so I, I worked, uh, I played all those records through the eighties, uh, all the way up until 87, when I ended up going to work at Mer records, uh, her label in the LA office. And so I was very, very intimately involved in getting the lead me on record out, uh, which is a, a pinnacle for me, a career highlight for me. One of the most important things I've ever been involved with was uh, Lead Me On. Unguarded, I was 14, 15 years old when that came out. So there's both the cute girl thing is it obviously I'm not gonna lie, that's a big factor. I sure. put the poster up in my room <laughs> and probably in my locker at school. But that record had a completely different energy to it and the songwriting, there was a song called um Sharia on it uh -huh. that was a, that was much it was about sharing your faith with a friend like i i could relate to that mm -hmm. um there was a lot on that record that i was like oh now this record i actually listened to that record as just a kid listening to the record because i enjoyed it but when you go back to um uh talking about the early stuff i'm 10 years younger so i was i was 10 years old in 1980 and my mom was listening to father's eyes in fact i have a memory of my little brother tim singing that song 
constantly. It was like a performance thing. My mom would, he loved it and he has big eyes and he's singing that song and he sang it beautifully, but it was like a performance that, you know, he was singing that song and it was, you know, get the little kid out to sing for the family and it was just gorgeous. But, but that's not, you know, I was listening to by 10 years old, I, I was listening to Dylan and talking heads and the clash and I was finding that kind of music. So when mom would put that music on, it wasn't resonating with me. And all of that production stuff was what I mean. I, I couldn't really get later when I got into some of her stuff, I could go back and find some songs and think there's actually some interesting songwriting going on. I want to hear them say she's got her father's eyes, her father's eyes. Michelle, what what's your like when did you first when did Amy come onto your radar and and come into like when did you become aware of her music at first and how did it kind of filter into your life well my first memory is as a little girl I'm guessing maybe I was 10 based on when you know her these albums came out my aunt took my cousin and I to see Amy Grant at Six Flags in uh, St. Louis yeah that was my first concert that i remember being at you know where there was a big stage and a big crowd um i remember her awesome curly hair um and el shaddai i know was a big that was like the big song of the night i didn't know a lot of her music though because um my mom had stuff like gaither and you know a lot of southern gospel stuff that she listened to she didn't have Amy Grant. I mean, she had Evie, or I don't even know if she had that record, but I know she liked Evie. Um, so it wasn't like the music was something I could go home and listen to. Right. I just experienced it at that concert. Right. And, you know, I knew of a couple of her songs right. <laughs> at that age. But it was later when it actually got under your skin and became something important to you. When I was 19 years old, I found myself in a situation where I was really having a, a crisis of... I don't know, identity, faith. I had dressed like every friend or guy in my life that I wanted to impress or that I wanted to love me. I adopted that style, how I dressed, the music I listened to. Even in high school, like I smoked the same cigarettes as whatever guy I liked at the time. I was always trying to be what other people needed me to be instead of myself. And and John and I became friends, and I very quickly started to realize a huge difference in how John looked at me, spoke to me, um, different than any guy in my life, maybe. I noticed a big difference and didn't really know what to make of it, but I knew that I liked being around him a lot, and so we spent a lot of time together. But I found myself, and John had this Christian music store, True Tunes, 
And I went out there one day to kind of check some stuff out. And I knew that I liked Amy Grant. I remembered that, you know, she was somebody that I had liked in the past. And so I asked for some of her things. And I went back to my apartment and found myself listening to this music that was from when I was 10 years old, 12 years old. And I was 19, 18 or 19 at the time. And that music from when I was a little kid is what I needed to hear. And it was like, for the first time, these lyrics, and they really weren't the big hits that were making the impact. They were these the sort of other songs on the album that felt like they were just waiting in little corners for me to find. And it, for me, these songs and Amy's voice and these lyrics felt like the sister I never had, felt like the big sister who knew all my secrets so I didn't have to tell. I didn't have to tell her them. I didn't have to say everything. Somehow it was known and she could just speak into my life and tell me that there was light ahead. And I felt seen. And of course she didn't know me from Adam, but I felt seen and it was the weirdest feeling to be seen in my heart and not just physically seen. And, you know, some of those songs that really got in, into me, into my heart, were a raining on the inside. Um, some lyrics from that, a wall of words, a heart unheard that hides behind a mask. That was definitely me. Arms of love. Lord, I'm really glad you're here. I hope you feel the same when you see all my fear. These songs were, like, so real and personal. Like, the album Never Alone had a song called that's the day and it talks about how all these hard things are going to pass away and there is going to be joy someday and uh and one of the songs that really really impacted me along those lines was all i ever have to be all i ever have to be is what you made me any more or less would be apart from your plan and and you know now I've been married 30 years and we got four awesome kids so I think it worked out pretty good but um and it's been really fun to kind of have some encounters with Amy over the years um I haven't had the opportunity to tell her any of these stories but I did get a chance to hang out with her a couple years ago at that wild goose fest um just wandering around trying to figure out what seminars to go to like just two women trying to find our way and it was really nice and all I ever have to be is what you've made me Any more or less would be a step out of your plan As you daily recreate me, help me always keep in mind That I only have to do what I can find And all I ever have to be All I have to be all I ever have to be is what you've made in me. Chris, when you when you hear that, and when I hear that, it reminds me that industry is one thing but the reason i think that amy had a gold record with age to age was that people were on the other side of that like 
500,000 records makes a record gold, but that's because there's a lot of people that are responding to that. And I think that when success happens, we tend to remember the success, but maybe forget the building blocks behind the success. Mm. Um, Tell me some songs that stood out to you, especially in those early years, as things that you thought, okay, this this artist is special, and these are some songs that that people really should go back and listen to and, and pay attention to, to understand the early years of Amy Grant. I think father's eyes was, was again, the, the, the record that was kind of my gateway for her. The other thing I wanted to speak to with Michelle's feedback was that Amy is delivering these songs and especially those types of songs in a very vulnerable place. It's not, no one's going like, man, she's, a heck of a singer. Man, that's an amazing guitar lick. It's all about the delivery and the vulnerability and the honesty and the kind of the 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 desire for more and uh the being unsure of herself. And in any interview, she she lives that way. She lives that out and says, I don't know why those things happened. I don't know why that thing happened for me. She told me on stage at that Wild Goose Festival a couple years ago, coming up on three years, in fact, Mm -hmm. she said, there were times where someone would say, we want you to come sing on this song. In particular, it was was the duet with Peter Cetera, uh, Next Time I Fall in Love. And when they brought that idea to her, her first thought was, wow, so there must have been a plane with the best female vocalists in all <laughs> the world went down in some Himal- crashed into a Himalayan mountain and I'm the only one left that they could ask to sing on this song. And wow. it, is it that's it is really one of the most beautiful stories about her is because she was always in awe of what was being laid out and and what she was stepping out into next. So I'd say Father's Eyes was uh, really, really important, and then, and then she had two live records. Mm-hmm. She had the record that the Never Alone record that you're talking about, but the ramp up man into 1982 and uh, Age to Age, right. uh, which might be one of the first Christian records to ever go gold. It's definitely one of them, yeah. Um, with Sing Your Praise to the Lord, which had a classical music intro that there was no edit for. There was no radio edit. We were playing a 45-second classical music, piano, instrumental intro into the song. And And that's a Rich Mullins song. A Rich Mullins song as well. (laughs) And people couldn't get enough of it. And it was the the launch of, of an amazing record and huge number one songs. Right. And it's interesting. Sing Your Praise to the Lord is an interesting song, too, for me, because it seems to be one of those things that kind of ushers in the very beginnings of this kind of modern worship thing, because it it is a praise song, but it's also very contemporary. The language, come on, everybody, stand up and sing one more hallelujah. Like it's it's very folksy, Mm -hmm. but it's also very formal. And then it's got that. So it's high church meets folk in the language and that seems to be really important because it's it's bring it's setting the stage for a lot of that to start coming forward and it's going to take a little bit of time but that modern folk worship is going to in a few more years kind of 
take over stuff. Sing your praise to the Lord. Come on, everybody, stand up and sing one more. Hallelujah, give your praise to the Lord. I can never tell you just how much good that is going to do you just to sing anew. The song your heart learned to sing when he first gave his life to you. The life goes on and so must the song you got to sing again. The song born in your soul when you first gave your heart. Um, that album for me, El Shaddai, mm-hmm. uh, which for the record, I'm not the John Thompson that co-wrote that song with Michael Card. Uh, <laughs> I still have people think that. That would be nice. Uh, right? yeah. But I'm not that guy. But that song was, was big for me. And, and especially having her sing that song on that album, that got my attention because it had that theological sophistication. It, may, it was intriguing to me to have a song with this Hebrew language in it and breaking into very emotional ideas about the crucifixion and Hebrew. It was connecting. It was, it was very complicated. And and as a 13 year old, 14 year old kid, it gave me something to chew on and to go look up and what do these words mean? And what, you know, so um, that was really, really important. And that I I got a lot of respect for her uh, with that song. And it, and as a songwriter, it inspired me to think, man, there's a lot more stuff out there as a person of faith to plumb. There's there's a lot more territory to go into when it comes to that, and even musically, it's uh, with a minor key and the, the way that the song is written. It was uh, that was a big. That was probably my first favorite Amy Grant song was mm-hmm. El Shaddai. El Shaddai, El Shaddai, El Adonai. Age to age, you're still the same By the power of the name El Shaddai, El Shaddai Echam Kana Adonai We will praise and lift you high El Shaddai 84 is when she released uh, Straight Ahead. Mm-hmm. But I saw the Age to Age tour come to Syracuse with Michael W. Smith opening, singing to tracks. Some of his songs he played keys, and then other songs he sang to tracks and just ran back and forth across the front of the stage. I couldn't even get an interview with Amy Grant by that point in time. By February of 83, they were, they were being careful with wow. who she would talk to and who she wouldn't. And wow. So then it seems to me that... a a paradigm shift happens with Unguarded. So what's your perception of the shifts that happened around that record? And what what song do you think kind of represents Unguarded well? If we're going to listen to one song from that record and kind of say what, you know. I mean, it's, it's the pop hit of Find A Way, which was also a Christian radio hit. And I was in my mid 20s and going out and speaking to youth groups and defending Amy Grant and defending Res Band and defending DeGarmo and Key. And, and in that time period, there was so much division between what's Christian, what's secular. And here's, here's Amy taking a step out and putting a foot in firmly in mainstream radio with Find A Way. And I had people arguing with me at these youth group meetings that I'd go to or these Christian music seminars that I would do in Syracuse. And 
parents would stand up and said, what's, what's Amy Grant doing? Why is she leaving the church? Why is she leaving Christian music? Her song's on Top 40 Radio. And I would draw them to the bridge and the, the lyric of, if our God, his son not sparing, came to rescue you, is there any circumstance that he can't see you through, right? And it's like I would constantly be defending a Christian lyric on Top 40 Radio and saying, isn't this what we want? Don't we want to fling the doors wide open, to quote Martin Smith, and say, this is for everybody. This is mm-hmm. not just for us uh, to be you know, in the blessing club kind of thing. And so right. I, I think Find a Way uh, from Unguarded was... Uh, such such an important it was a it was a sea change in our industry and definitely for her in in her career as well I came from an environment where my church and people around me were not on some kind of weird witch hunt. Okay. And I never understood why people weren't excited that a song like that would be on the pop charts. And, and I honestly still struggle with that. Um, especially a song like find a way now, a little bit later when she does a love song with some, I could see maybe if they're going, Oh, she's doing a duet with somebody that's not her husband or something. I guess I can kind of at least conceptually understand that. But do you have any understanding being from the industry and working in Christian radio and having done it for so long, what the, like she was becoming at that point, maybe already was the face of what CCM music, contemporary Christian music, she represented that. Yeah. And why do you suppose people were upset about CCM music breaking out into the mainstream? Because that's the same time that Striper's breaking out and having, you know, To Hell With The Devil is hitting the charts in the mainstream. And um, why do you suppose that people were so upset and not going, hey, we're, we're impacting the world. We're taking it into the world. Why, I right. Don't, why? I, I, and, you know, we're 35 years uh, removed from that time period. The, the demarcation lines were so strong between sacred and secular, and it was very, very hard. It was a, it was a shock to people uh, that those things would ever meet, that, they mm-hmm. would, that there would ever be any kind of overlap in that world. And so, and I think, you know, it's like people who loved early U2, when U2 breaks into a wider audience, all of a sudden those early fans were like, ah, screw it. I, I don't like them anymore. Yeah. And so it, people felt a certain kind of ownership over Amy. Uh, and, and that happens in any number of, it's Lauren Daigle's story, you know, in the last three, four years or so. Uh, it's, there are some people who just, they, they get this idea, they project an idea about an artist, and then they say, they're mine, and they're mine in this little box. I've got right. them in this little box. and But artists are not to be kept in little boxes. Right? <laughs> well, I, Eddie um, DeGarmo once told me that it's about the perceived lean. That if you, if, if you feel like an artist belongs to you and in your camp, and then you perceive that they're leaning away from you towards the rest of the world, then you feel like you're being abandoned. Yeah. Whereas if you feel like somebody from the 
quote-unquote mainstream or secular world or whatever you want to call it is leaning towards you then you feel like you're being validated Mm. so it wouldn't matter how evil that person was if they're validating you the emotion you're feeling is validation whereas if 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 somebody from your camp is your perception is they're leaning away then you feel abandoned you're being left and so it's two different different emotions but neither of them is actually connected to anything rational or real it's an emotional response to something but dude that's great i've never heard that but that's brilliant there's nothing quite like my family's love to warn me and Nothing short of death's gonna ever leave me cold Well still at times it's lonely But through it all it only makes me love Jesus more But this is what he The next song on the ladder as we're climbing up uh, up, up this journey, um, Lead Me On, there's there's this next big kind of shift. And that was the first album that even as a fan of music, I was like, okay, now this album, <laughs> this, is enough, this is a whole other thing. I've so, listened to Lead Me On hundreds and hundreds of times. I mean, maybe over a thousand times in my life. And that was my introduction into the Murr label when I went to work there. Yeah. Um, I was called into this meeting. I was given a cassette of Lead Me On. It was a rainy January in LA in 88. They said, all the head guys are coming in and they want to have a meeting in the morning and we're going to talk about how we're going to launch Lead Me On. And so I crammed on the record, on the on this cassette tape overnight. I came in the next morning and it was, you know, the top three or four people in the Word Corporation were there. I'm 27 years old. I'm not smart enough to know label politics. I barely understand any of this stuff. And they said, well, our first single is going to be the title track, Lead Me On. And uh, they said, Chris, you're our radio promoter. What's going to be our first song? And I said, man, I think Saved by Love should be the first song. And they were like, wrong, just like on the <laughs> McLaughlin group on TV. And they said, we're Amy- this is Amy Grant. She can do whatever she wants. And I simply said, you guys, I've just come from the other side. I'm fresh from Christian radio. She had a Rolling Stone article that was slightly controversial. Uh, she had a hit with Peter Cetera. She had a couple of mainstream songs. And I think Saved by Love just got has all the right words and the right it's still talking about a human situation and a human relationship and a family. But it's about a person who's loved by God and she knows it. It says Jesus in the song. <laughs> and I just think Christian radio should, should, uh, it will eat this thing up. And they, they bought it. They bought it. They bought what a 27 year old fresh from Christian radio was telling them in the radio department. And so that was the first massive smash from Lead Me On. But I would say coming back in with the Lead Me On song, and I was just with Amy and, Mike Blanton and, and all the producers of Heart and Motion a couple of months ago talking about the 30th anniversary of Heart and Motion. And they were talking about the heaviness of Lead Me On. Mm-hmm. There was heaviness in her uh, relationships. Uh, there was 
just a heaviness in what was going on around her in that time period. And uh, there was also a heaviness in the church in the late 80s. Uh, televangelist scandals were happening. There was just a lot oh. of hard things that were happening then. And so Lead Me On was that next step in that sense of really talking about some serious things. And mm-hmm. here the title track is about uh, the Jews in captive in captivity mm-hmm. uh, in the Old Testament and then slaves in America in the 1850s and then, or through the 1800s and then Jews being loaded onto train cars in Germany uh, by the Nazis uh, in the 1930s and 40s. That was all packed into this very heavy Lead Me On single, which ended up being a number one smash for us. Uh, it was an attempt at pop radio as well. It didn't really work at pop radio. Um, but I, I would say Lead Me On was that huge song that just felt massive. She's daring to touch on things that CCM music at that point was already uh, avoiding. Yeah. And she was diving straight into vulnerability and um, some political ideas. It was powerful. I was really surprised because again, and that's why I'm leaning on friends here to help unpack the music of Amy Grant, because as a kid, I started True Tunes when I was 16. Right. Amy Grant was a symbol, you know, and she was beautiful, clean CCM music. And a lot of what I was doing was like, I was trying to reach people like me that were a little bit left of that, you uh-huh. know, off yeah. in the margins. And that wasn't the kind of music. But then Lead Me On, their songs going, oh, actually, that's the same era as Joshua Tree. And it's the same era yeah. as, you know, alternative music was getting more organic and it was starting to really become more mainstream and i felt like there's a, this this record has kind of a lot in common with with that shoulder to the wheel for someone else's selfish game here there is no choosing working the claim wearing their like a ball and chain Fire in the field Underneath the blazing sun But soon the sun was faded Freedom was a song I heard them singing When the day was done Singing to the whole Where the river runs into your keeping Oh, lead me on, lead me on The awaited deliverance comforts the seeking Oh, lead on I always thought the early, early Amy Grant was the biggest impact But as I'm sitting here looking through these records I'm like, even... Uh, you know, heart in motion in 91 is when John and I got yeah. married and it kind of comes full circle with some of the songs there. I didn't realize that it was heart in motion that this song was on, but when John and I are, were in the, you know, heart of our romance, like engaged, getting married, she came out with ask me, yeah, which is, you know, about this little girl going through abuse. And then later on in the song, she's a woman and she's, 
learning to realize that it doesn't have to have power over her and she doesn't have to live in that fear and anxiety and pain and shame and all of that. And she can move on and see value and let herself be loved. And yeah. um, it's pretty crazy that that came out like the year that I found a man to, you know, love me and see me and marry me and. A lot of people mistakenly think of Heart in Motion as this super light record. And and it's tricky. Like it's got baby baby, it's got every heartbeat, and every heartbeat is a Charlie Peacock song. Like that is a brilliantly mm-hmm. crafted song. So to me, every heartbeat is one of those songs that um it, you got baby baby, that's the eye candy, you know, that, that gets you in there. But then every heartbeat is a freaking brilliant pop song. To me, Hope Set High is the one that you, it reminds me of the Jesus movement. It's it's all the way back to the Jesus songs that she was doing back when she's 14 and she goes to, you hear the stories about her going up on stage at Belmont Church in Nashville and you hear Hope Set High and as a, you know, when we're listening to that, I'm going, oh my gosh, like this is, and then I, you know, I remember being down here, uh, down here in Nashville. We lived in Chicago still right. at the time, but she was doing a youth group thing at her barn with a bunch of teenagers um, and I can't remember which ch- church or any of the details but I just remember that there was this youth group that met at her barn and there was a bunch of songs kind of coming out of that and Hope Set High was something connect- connected to that Yes. and I remember going there once for somebody just said hey you should come out and see this because everybody knew True Tunes was kind of youth youth driven at that point in time because we were all still yeah. U- Utes <laughs> but but that was a song for me that definitely jumped out as being well, a, uh, that was The Loft they called yes, that that's they right, called yeah. the barn The Loft and tons of kids would go out there I think every Sunday night yeah. and uh, Mike and Dan her managers gave me a, a cassette copy a 10 song cassette copy of Heart Motion in the summer of 90 as the radio promotion guy at Murr uh, we became close. We we worked well together and had a, a great deal of success. They gave me the cassette, asked me to listen through, just like Lead Me On a couple of years earlier, and said, "Are there an, is there enough Christian content on this record? Do we have? Do we need one more big Christian statement for this record?" And I came back to him and I said, "Yeah, I, I'd love it. I would love it if you could do that." And and I was asking for me, being the radio promotion guy, and uh, they said, "Well." We're kind of at the tail end of the recording, but Amy's been singing all these songs out at uh, out at the loft on Sunday nights with these kids, and there's a song that's come out of that evening, those evenings called Hope Set High. Uh, we'll send a copy of it to you and see what you think. And I was like, sounds great to me. Let's, yeah. let's and it was the it was the add-on. And then right. Omardian was able to make it sound 
it, yes, Jesus music, Jesus movement sort of thing idea, but he still made it sound very, very contemporary. It, it didn't sound out which of is place. what Jesus music sounded like in nineteen. Yeah, that's right. It didn't sound. <laughs> it, it didn't sound out of place on the record. Right. Right. right you know. Right, right. I've got my hopes set high. That's why I came tonight. I need to see the truth. I need to see the lie. Got my hopes set high That's why I came tonight I need to see the truth I need to see the light And I can do my best And pray to the Father But the one thing I ought to know by now When it all comes down When it all comes down there's anything good that happens in life, it's from Jesus. And know that when it all comes down, when it all comes down, if there's anything good that happens in life, it's from Jesus. I would say, um, I, I told her this a couple of months ago when I left Murr in the fall of 90, I, I was walking away from heart and motion. I was walking away from Amy and Mike and Dan and all the camaraderie we had. And I, I when I gave my notice at Murr to move to Nashville and work at Warner brothers, I wept. I, I did not want to leave them, yeah. but I was walking away from, you know, the biggest selling record of all time in Christian music was right. heart and motion. Right. And I was walking away from it and it was painful. So I, from then on, it was me just cheering them on and watching from the sidelines as as yeah. it all came together. But I think House of Love. I think in '94, uh, House of Love was had some mainstream crossover. It was the duet with Vince Gill. It was a foretelling of you know what was to come for them in their in their home. Uh, but it was uh, I thought that there was some very very cool things that happened on that record as well. When you go back and listen, man, the the arrangement, the like, you're talking next level sophistication. This is world class level pop music stuff that yeah. they're doing, and the vocal arrangements and performance to have a country and Vince Gill at that point is at the top of his game as a country star and pulled into this thing. Uh, it's really interesting. It was definitely not the bullseye of where I was at in terms of the music I was listening to every day. But I remember we went to that tour. It was an impressive tour. They set the whole stage up like a big living room, you know, a big house with, you know, that, that stuff. And uh, it was just watching this writ large. This was as big as that. <laughs> and I'd seen her so many times over the years, but kind of watching really sophisticated adult pop music, yeah. kind of as good as it could get. Um, but still, going back and listening to it now, thinking there's stuff being said here kind of between the grooves that I missed even back then. Well, I bet you any amount of money you'll be coming back to you Ooh, I know there ain't no doubt about it Sometimes life is funny You think you're in your darkest hour When the lights are coming on in the house 
I started to get really impressed with the song craft. Like it felt like she got more involved as a writer and the production even got more sophisticated. Takes a little time, for instance. I can't even count how many times in my life that line, it takes a little time for the Titanic to turn back around has come in my head. Like, <laughs> you know, whether it's my own choices in my life or my attitudes or people I'm walking through life with, that song and that and the the maturity and sophistication that's coming through on Behind the Eyes uh, and has been, that was profound to me. And, th and then I started to see Amy coming into her own in a different gear as an artist that I don't think she gets enough credit for. And I, and I also started to notice those early influences of Carole King and Joni Mitchell, you know, starting to come out. She's put out several records that didn't get, it doesn't seem like she was getting a lot of attention, at least relative to what the kind of attention she was getting at radio in the 90s. Yeah. Um, I think Somewhere Down the Road is a is another great song. Oh, yeah. You know, I don't know what kind of impact it had. You know, I wasn't really paying attention to radio and stuff, but, you know, was that something that that registered or is it just something that I love because it's a cool song? I think, I think it's something that she has come back to uh, numerous times as well. It's not a song that she'll never sing giggle again, but I think she sang <laughs> uh, or fat baby, but I think she sang somewhere down the road at a writer's round like last week. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, it's, it can, it continues to resonate. All I know to say now is somewhere down the road. One of my proudest moments working at Capitol for all those years was being able to set up the co-write that led to the writing of Better Than a Hallelujah. Um, oh, man. You know, so that song was written by Chapin Hartford hmm. uh, with Sarah Hart. And Sarah Hart was a writer with Capitol. And then uh, Chapin was somebody who had written some country songs and Southern gospel songs. And she just come in to meet with me. Um, and I found her to be very compelling and so I connected her with one of our uh, creative directors Matt Ewald and Matt worked with Sarah and so he connected her to Sarah they set up they wrote and I can't remember if it was me or Matt it was probably Matt that actually sent the song up to the label and they sent it to Amy and she cut it but when when I heard Amy 
her version of that song, it was just like, oh my gosh, I can't believe that in some fractional way, I, I had something to do with that, you know, and, and, and it's, it's just for one thing, just thinking how many people it takes for these things to happen, how many little gears God uses in these machines. And I take no credit for that at all, but just the beauty in that song and the yeah. honesty and the, the and that's what we hear in the conversation with her today is the wisdom that comes from just saying stop saying the thing you think god wants to hear and just start telling the truth god loves a lullaby in a mother's tears in the dead of night better than a hallelujah sometimes God loves a drunkard's cry, the soldier's plea not to let him die, better than a hallelujah sometimes. We pour out our miseries, God just hears a melody, beautiful the mess we are, the honest cries of breaking hearts. Kind of what I'd like to hear you talk about a little bit when we listen and we think about Christian music today, we think about what Amy Grant, who is the queen of Christian music, she's the what Dolly Parton is to country music, will, Amy Grant is to CCM music, always be, and yet I'm not hearing that kind of music as often now coming out of i don't sense people young people having the kind of moments listening to those little songs on albums that were tucked away for them to find part of it is because of streaming i guess they're only hearing singles part of it is just because maybe radio is driving things so much that it's only about singles but um when you think back and you're listening to all of this stuff and reminiscing and what should we be learning from this and, and maybe what should we be encouraging artists in the next generation and shell you too, as a songwriter, you're writing songs all the time and you're working with younger writers and co-writing all the time. What are some things we'd like to be hearing people of faith doing creatively and how might Amy inspire us to do this better? In the next 10, 20 years. Well, I'm I'm going to sound like a caveman compared to what Michelle can say, but let me at least just say that even even you're talking about better than a hallelujah. There's there's a new sweet level of openness, honesty, doors wide open, heart wide open that Amy is showing these days in the last few years in her communication, in her, in her um, friendship with people. She's always been incredibly uh, unassuming and open-hearted. But I think she's that, that, that song really represents a, a perfect way of being in the sense of just being yourself, being honest, being gut-level honest about who you are, um, and, then, and then letting God take all of that, be be an infuse in all of that. And so, man, you've, you've had some great writers on your podcast already from Don Chaffer to Phil Madeira. You've got the greatest writers who've come to you and been with you. Um, and th- those people are some of the pinnacles for me and of who are writing 
great art that still communicates to everybody. It's not like, oh, you've got to be a member of this club to understand what this song is about. I mean, if I'm thinking about writers now, some of my favorites, I love Lori McKenna. And again, it goes right back to that honest, real, it paints a picture. I can feel it. I can smell it. I can hear it. What the lyrics are, the picture they're painting, the emotion that they're painting. Krista Wells is another person that just her writing is so real and honest and just gut level feed your soul um that's another album that i didn't find until way years after it came out but had a huge impact on me walking me through a very difficult time with a friend's death and velveteen just which is like the story of her going through her marriage falling apart and it's just gorgeous and real and accessible and um that's what i'm drawn to man i like i have a bs detector and i'm like i just don't have patience for stuff that i don't believe you know i just i just turn it off that probably sounds really rude and but i just i'm not interested life's too short to listen to stuff that's not real i need you know and it doesn't have to be real and sad although that tends to be a lot of fun you know but just it can be real and celebrating things too but it just needs to be real and true you could take your loss you could hide away from us with your grief lassoed around you but you're laying it in the sun and you stare straight into the light you say you'd rather go blind than look away what can i say gonna try to break you but it doesn't have to you're showing us how this thing is gonna bend and shape you but it won't let it take you you know it's something I think that's probably the difference between good and great and why artists like Amy are so rare is that when you find somebody whose instincts and aptitudes and their sensibilities all line up with what the audience really needs and that radar is working and the fact that she's not over singing, she's comfortable in her skin, at least eventually that's so rare but then what you find is you you find a whole lot of people that just try to mimic it because it's successful so you get you get crops and crops of amy impersonators and it's not it's it's not their fault like it's normal that happens in everything i mean it's not just even in music (laughs) like you get a new restaurant that's successful there's going to be 10 clones of it you get that's just the way things are but I think that as successful as Amy was at what she was doing, part of why so many people dismiss CCM music is is because the people that came after her and mimicked her just weren't as good as her. <laughs> and so instead of it being a genre where there was 
two or three or four other people at that level that had songs that impacted the whole world at that level, it became a, a farm league of not quite as good as Amy Grant happening, but it was good enough to satisfy the people in the margins, you know, and they were happy to have the stuff you're talking about that was clearly for their team. And they, they, they were, that was good enough and they were, they were cool. And that I think is what I'm hoping when we go back and we examine some of this stuff and we take some time to be mindful and thoughtful, we might wake up a little bit and go, which, where do we want to be? Like who, who are our role models and what's our inspiration and what, what are our goals here? You have to over time raise the bar. And now it seems that radio is still important, but with streaming, we can get to anybody. Like we, the, there's new opportunities that we didn't have back then. You didn't have to go find a weird Christian bookstore and talk to somebody that may or may not know what's going on to get that record and then take it home. Like you can find this music anywhere. Right. So what are we going to, how can we inspire the next generation to write the kind of songs that will hit today's kids that are going through a bunch of terrible stuff the way that Amy's songs impacted you? Because that's what we need. And, and, you know, we need that kind of honesty and we need to be able to find it when it's out there. Well, thank you guys. I appreciate that a whole lot. And uh, thank you, Chris, for being with us. It's long time coming i sure appreciate it john i tell um i tell everybody this is my favorite music podcast of the 10 million that are in existence this is my (laughs) favorite music podcast and i love the work that you and producer bruce put in uh when these uh episodes come out there he is waving at us on the the screen and uh, honestly i'm i'm a little i'm giddy and honored and i got through it for me to be uh, in the hot seat today. So thank you for making making a place for me today. Awesome. Well, we hope to have you back again so you're not totally off the hot seat. You're just, we'll release you for today. This is my father's world And to my listening ears All nature sings And round me rings The music of the sphere When I'm in the bottom of my closet cleaning out things, doing the KonMari method, you know, (laughs) does this bring me joy (laughs) or do I give it away? What I sing are are hymns. And so, you know, to me, that is a time that I return to. This is the slot where I usually pull out my soapbox and add my two cents. But here's the thing. I feel like we've been given more than enough to contemplate already on this episode. Between Amy's simple message, love God, love your neighbor, and the way Michelle shared so vulnerably about feeling seen, I find myself more motivated to continue to listen rather than speak. I'm thinking about how powerful and freeing it is to be seen by Jesus. Because when Jesus saw people, That seeing was accompanied with life-changing love. The religious leaders viewed people as a means to their ends or a problem to be managed. Jesus saw us in all of our brokenness and need and loved us. 
What is the song he is singing over you today? What is the song he may long to sing through you to others? Okay, I'm climbing off my soapbox now. Beautiful the mess we are The honest cries of breaking hearts Are better than a hallelujah it for this episode of the true tunes podcast thank you amy grant for being so generous with your time and thanks to my jukebox heroes chris hauser and michelle lynn thompson for adding so much to our tour through amy's music add your comments either on the show notes page at truetunes.com or over at our facebook page you can also find a picture of me having a very bad hair day with amy back in 1991 over there you'll also find a complete list of all of the music used on this episode on the show notes page Thanks, as always, to my co-producer and compatriot, Bruce A. Brown. Thanks to Phil Keggy and Rex Paul for our theme song. And if this is your first time listening, welcome. We have lots more for you to discover in the archives. You should probably just let this thing flow right into our previous episode with Third Man Records artist Natalie Bergman and the conversation before that with Taylor Lenhart. Of course, we also have conversations with Krista Wells, Charlie Peacock, Eddie DeGarma, Waterdeep, Sandra McCracken, Liz Weiss, Michael Gunger, Phil Madeira, Kevin Max, Buddy Miller, Phil Keggy, and many more waiting there for you to discover as well. I hope you enjoy them all. Follow me on Instagram at TheOnlyJJT and at TrueTunesMusic and over on Twitter at John J. Thompson. The contents of the podcast are protected by U.S. copyright law and are the intellectual property of Gyroscope Productions with the exception of songs or clips that are from previously copywritten materials. Everything on this episode is used by permission or under fair use provisions. This program is intended for the private use of our listening audience. Gyroscope Productions can be reached at JJT at TrueTunes.com or P.O. Box 60401, Nashville, Tennessee, 37206. Until next time, this is JJT inviting you to keep your ears tuned for those songs that stir the good, the true, and the beautiful in you. Love God, love your neighbor, and invite them to listen to some good music with you as you do. Peace. I send greetings on behalf of the people of our planet. We step out of our solar system into the universe seeking only peace and friendship to teach if we are called upon, to be taught if we are fortunate. We know full well that our planet and all its inhabitants are but a small part of this immense universe that surrounds us and it is with humility and hope that we take this step.